Uh, this past weekend, I took my son to Zootopia, the new Disney movie that's out. I'm a big Disney fan. Unfortunately, for those of you who haven't yet seen it, it's not very good. Uh, it was, it's, it, of the last four Disney movies that came out, Tangled was better, Frozen was better, Inside Out was better. So this comes in fourth in the last four movies. The, the plot, though, was really interesting. In fact, the plot was really just a Disneyfied version um, of Thomas More's book and idea of utopia. Many of you have probably heard that word, utopia, hence the play on words with Zootopia. Uh, and Utopia is this fictional island society that Thomas More writes about. And on this island, uh, there is perfect society. People get along perfectly, they're ruled perfectly, they function perfectly, they're in relationship perfectly with one another. And there's all these sectors of the island that are broken up and they have everything in common. And in Zootopia, you see a similar portrayal of reality. You see predators and prey living alongside of each other and they look back at the time where predators would eat the prey. That was the uncivilized time, the dark ages, but now they know how to work together. And the plot of this movie is there are the, your two main characters, and there's been this outbreak of predators wanting to eat cute fuzzy bunnies, which also terrified my son. Uh, and so they're trying to figure out what it is that is causing the disruption in this utopia. What is it that's bringing out the worst in these animals? And the thesis is, if everyone was left to their own, good things would happen. The problem was, is either through certain animals' experience or through the intervention of something, you'll have to watch the movie to find out, uh, through that intervention, these animals become bad and it disrupts the culture. The irony of this movie and the irony of Zootopia is that Thomas More's word utopia that he made up is the, the conjugation of two Greek words, which literally means not a place, no place. Thomas More's reality, which he painted, the, the joke is, it's not real. It's not sustainable, it can't happen. We can't have a perfect society. Yet, the dream of utopia is pervasive, isn't it? We talk about it, we know of the word, we desire that perfect society, you can't escape it as a human. We're in the middle of an election season here in the United States, in case you didn't know, uh, uh, and there's some campaign slogans out there that are interesting. So of the five candidates left, three of the campaign slogans are make America great again of he who should not be named, uh, <laughs> reignite the promise of America, and a political revolution is coming. And then there's Hillary's, which is just Hillary for America, because apparently her name is enough of a slogan, um, and which is then followed up by John Kasich's, which is just K for us and or U.S., yeah, get it? Um, so anyway, but the rest of these guys, they're all promising either the institution of or the return to some sort of utopia. Make it great again. Resurrect a promise. Stir the revolution. And the interesting thing is that in politics, in literature, in movies, and wherever we encounter this idea of utopia, it's good that that dream be taken hold of by the masses, by the people. We as the people should want that. But as you begin to look at the narrative of what accompanies utopia, unless you have leaders willing to govern that state of perfect peace, that state of uh, no resistance, it doesn't work. Utopia can be believed by whoever you want to believe, but unless there's someone to direct or to preserve this utopia, it falls apart. Today in Romans 13, we're looking at the Christian 
and government. We're looking at how we as believers live in a world where government exists. And the question I want you to think about is whatever happened to utopia? Because I guarantee you there's not one single historical leader in human history who said, my job's to make things worse. They all had the idea of utopia. They all had this dream to make things better. So why do we have longings for a perfect world? Why is that in our hearts? And more importantly, how do these longings shape our life in this utopia, this place? Those are what we're going to look at today, and here's what we're going to see. To understand government, authority, and a responsibility, we need to know the God of the gospel and the gospel of God. Okay? To make sense of government, authority, and your role in that, you need to understand the God of the gospel and the gospel of God. So let's pray, and then we'll dive into Romans 13 tonight. Lord, we, we are grateful that the gospel is not only theoretical, um, and not only theological, but it also has practical, social, and global impact on how we live our lives as believers and also as non-believers. But Lord, I pray tonight that we learn to think well, especially during this season um, with so much interest in government, which happens once every four years. Lord, I pray that in this room, we will have people who think well on government, who participate well as one who is ruled, but more importantly, that those thoughts and those actions are shaped by a clear picture of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we, we ask that you um, help us think deeply on this uh, to the glory of your name and for the good of us. We pray to your name. Amen. So we're going to start tonight just by looking at verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. Austin just read this, but we'll read it again. Let every person um, be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. So here we see this really plain and clear statement that all authority is from God and by God. That means that all authority and any sort of practical thing which surrounds authority like government or participation or rulers or principalities or laws, all of those things have to do with God. If you think about it, this generation and specifically this age group, college age, it's always typified as people who hate authority, right? We don't like being told what to do. We don't like rules. We don't like regulations. And why is it that we as humans are so touchy with authority, so confused by authority and so frustrated by authority. Have you ever thought about that? Why is it? You've never met one person who's like, I just like being told what to do. It's because understanding authority is a uniquely theological task. If God is the root of all authority, to be under authority or to be in authority is to have to wrestle with the reality of who God is. To know authority is to know the God of the gospel. And this is the first point tonight. Our first point is that God is the creative authority. God's not one of many. He is the creative authority. And to understand what I mean by creative authority, we need to look back at how we were created. Um, if you haven't seen, uh, read the first part of Genesis, 
That's a great place to start. I'm just going to kind of summarize what goes on here. And in Genesis 1, we see God created man and woman. And then in Genesis 2, we get kind of a retelling of the story with a little bit more details. And Adam was formed. Um, Adam's just the Hebrew word for man. Man was formed out of the dust to the ground. And dad, dad, God grabbed this dust um, and he breathed his breath into it. And that dust became a living man. And then God saw that it was good that Adam, or it was not good that Adam should be alone. And so he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep. And from Adam, he took uh, a rib and out of rib, he formed the woman. This means not only that God is creator, but it means that God did not create us as independent, unconnected entities. He could have created man out of nothing over here. He could have created woman out of nothing over here. And then he could have been like, you want kids? Kid, kid, kid. And that could have been his pattern throughout all history. But God created us as members of society. God created us as innately belonging to one another. We as creatures, by nature of God's creative authority, are naturally meant to live with and around one another. So why is it that we all have a deep longing for this utopia? We have a deep longing for cultures and societies which get along and benefit human well-being. That's because we are innately social beings created by God. That's part of the image of God that God has created man with that we desire to relate to one another and also to, to have relationships which are of uh, blessing, which are of benefit, and which are of great substance. That's the result of God's creative power in us. It's due to God's creative authority over his creatures. And not only did God create us in a culture, and that was the pattern, from each other, we create lineages, we create families, we create interconnected units, but he also created us to be in authority under him. So we were created as society, but we, are, we also created as a society under authority. Genesis 2, 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So here's the thing. God, there's been no, no you're studying for a government class. Uh, Adam didn't have on day one this government class where God came in. He's like, listen, uh, this is how you should best govern each other. And this is also the relationship I'll have with you. Um, so when I tell you to do something, you need to do it because I'm God and you're not. And you need to deal with it. God just commanded Adam. And Adam listened. Because that was the natural creative right. That was the first government. It was innate. Adam didn't need this explained to him. He knew that God created and God had authority. Now here's a practical question for us here. What is the best system of human government? If we went in the middle of the oval, we put up a sign, what's the best system of human government? We'd have all sorts of options. We'd have all sorts of people saying all sorts of different things. Is it a representative republic like we have in America today? Is it a parliament-based democracy like there is in England? 
Is it a socialist republic, an oligarchical system, a dictatorship, a pure democracy? And many will say, well, this is subjective, right? There are good systems of government, not so good systems of government, but to say that one is ultimate is pretty narrow-minded. But I'm here to tell you there is a best form of government. There's a form of government which is the greatest for all mankind, and that's a mon monarchical system. Sounds fun to say. Kings and queens. What do we mean by that? Are we talking about like modern kings and queens, like the, the queen of England who just sits and we make movies about her. Downton Abbey happened somewhere in there. <laughs> is it like medieval monarchs, right? King Arthur. Is it even like King David, the man after God's own heart? Is that the best system? Those still aren't the best monarchies. That's still not the system we're best to be ruled by. You see, the best rule for humanity is a monarchy like in Genesis 1 and 2, where it's not man, it's not a group of people, it's not a parliament, but it's God himself living as your king. And you see, there's this political philosophy that's floated around for a long while now, kind of a twist on uh, Plato's philosopher king, and it's called the benevolent dictator. And it's kind of this theoretical idea that what's best is a dictator who has power, who has uh, an effectiveness and a quickness to do what is best for the whole community not simply for himself or for a specific group of people. He makes decisions out of what is best for the whole society. And actually, if you look up benevolent dictators, they'll show you some. There's a guy in Singapore. There's a guy in Rwanda who people say, these are the best things we have as benevolent dictators. The problem is, each of those men, in certain points, they fell prey to political corruption. They had ideologies and reforms that never got established and went by the wayside. They were still corrupt. They were still incapable of total reform. But God as king is unique. God knows no corruption. God is wholly good and infinitely wise, kind and just, powerful, all-knowing and all-present. And as creator... He knows what's best for his creation, not by process of learning, but by process of creating. God knows perfectly what's best for humanity, and as sovereign God, nothing can stop God from doing what's best for humanity. Nothing can impinge upon his kingdom, nothing can derail him, and that's what Adam and Eve were placed in, utopia, in the presence of a good king, who gave them commands and rules to live and flourish and enjoy perfect relation with him. But something happened. They rejected their system of utopia. Satan came and he began to doubt the goodness of the good king. He began to say, did God really say that you shouldn't be like him? Does God really want what's best for you? Is God really able to do what you think God should do for you? And in history's first act of high treason, Adam and Eve chose to obey a creation rather than the creator. And in that first sin, we lost utopia. 
We lost the presence of God for a sinless God will not tolerate a sinful people. We lost a relationship with the good king. We polluted God's ideal society with the presence of death and suffering and deceit. And in the curse, um, Genesis 1 and 2, we see creation. In Genesis 3, we see what's called the fall, where man sins. And then we see the curse, where God curses the devil, and he curses man, and he curses Eve. And we begin to see immediately this perversion of authority. Because prior to the curse, God says to man, fill the earth and subdue it. Work the ground. Bring it into submission under you. But in the curse, we see that the earth now resists man. By the sweat of your brow, you will make your bread. Thorns and thistles will rise against you. Woman was created, um, God says, as man's helper, as man's lover. And yet, in this perfect relationship, I can tell you, I love my wife, my wife loves me, we're both Christians. But due to both of our sin, there are moments where we don't want to love each other. There are moments where it's hard to love one another. There are moments where Sarah doesn't want to honor me and moments where I don't want to love Sarah. And that's because of the curse. In the curse, we see now that her desire is to resist her husband's leadership and her husband is a flawed leader. And this is the day society became shattered and diverse. No one system of government became easily accessible to man because we lost relationship with the only system of government we were meant to live in. The only system of government meant to lead man in wisdom and peace and longevity. To know the God of the gospel is to know that God has not made man to be led or governed by man. That's not how he made man. That wasn't God's original intent. On your, on your government quiz tomorrow, just say, government's a sham. It's a secondary solution to a long-term problem. Which is why it's so shocking here that God says, submit yourselves to the governing authority. That's not what we were meant to do. That's not what man was made to do. And yet God here is telling us to submit to men as authorities. Because while man is not meant to be governed by God, and in the new heavens and the new earth will be governed again by the good king, God has given man authority for the sake of common grace. That means that the government is good for everyone, ideally. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Government helps. It's good. It brings control. Otherwise, chaos emerges. We all see Disney movies like Zootopia, where the best thing is for you to be yourself. Uh, Shakira is a gazelle in there called Gazelle, and she sings this song about everyone just being themselves and the world will be great. The problem is, has you ever, have you ever heard of the movie The Purge? Okay? The premise of it is rules go away for 48 hours. You know what happens? Ice cream trucks start going around handing out free ice cream. Kids go to college and get great educations, solve world hunger, world peace ensues, natural reserves become the whole world. That's not what happens. <laughs> when you remove rules, when you remove authority, chaos erupts. People are cowering in their basements. Sin runs rampant. Rape and murder and thievery and destruction ensue in this 48 hours. And what that movie kind of provokes as a worst case scenario we know would be true. You see that in places like Africa, where there's not strong government. What has happened over the years is people fill the void. 
and they fill it with bad things and evil happens. So God in his wisdom knows that man was meant to be led and God has commissioned men in this immediate time frame to be ruled by men. Look back at Romans 13.1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. So, in this immediate, the premise of all government, there's this guy named uh, uh, Abraham Kuyper, and he was this Dutch uh, uh, political figure and also this theologian. He did great things in the Netherlands. He wrote a great book on uh, Christianity and politics. And he says the premise of all government is that God is sovereign over all of it. What he says, God is sovereign over the whole cosmos. And only when you understand that can you interact with government wisely. Because all rulers, what Paul says in Romans 13, all rulers are God's rulers. All rulers only have a significant authority because God has granted them a specific authority. But in order to understand this, we have to look at the rest of this. We have to see what borrowed authority means, both for those in authority and for those under authority. Verses 2 through 7. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out the wrath of God on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. So there's a lot of stuff going on in this passage, a lot of implications here, but it's important to note that Paul is not promoting or ordaining any specific form of government. The Bible's best form of government is God is king. Inside of that, there's a lot of leeway. He lets you go to government class and go to forums online and try to debate which system of government is best. But what Paul is doing is he is making assumptions about what government principles are best to rule over man. What are generic principles which we ought to use when it comes to ruling men? And there are three assumptions in this text. The first assumption is that the government ought to protect what is good. We talk about what government should do. The first thing is the government ought to protect what is good. Romans 13.3 says this, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. What, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. So whatever government system is in place, it should seek to permit or protect and promote good conduct. That's what it should do. Why would we fear authority if authority is there to protect good? But we would fear authority if we're doing wrong. Why do I fear a cop when I'm going 85 miles per hour down the interstate? It's not because I'm scared of a cop on his own. It's because I'm sinning. 
I'm speeding. I'm breaking a rule. And this is why morality is important. We live in a culture that thinks it's progressive by saying morality is progressive. Morality is subjective. Morality is gray. However, morality is more than a tradition. Reality is more than a religion. Reality is the barometer of what is good at any given moment. And the role of government is to do what is good at any given moment. If our morals become increasingly small, we're limiting the way in which government can govern for peace. You see, there was a lot of things going on early in the debate on the Republican stage when people were talking about specific uh, candidates' faith, and they'd say, uh, well, we're not electing a pastor-in-chief. Why do we care about his faith? Like, why do we care if our president is a good moral guy? Because if people don't know what good is, how are they to govern? It is good to have a good economy. How do they know what a good economy is if they don't know what's best? See, morality matters even on practical issues. At some point, we need to decide what is good. And God is saying here that the government cannot be blind to what is good. It needs to protect it. It needs to produce a culture where good is cherished. This mean a means a government should make decisions about what is right and what is wrong. Fear and distrust of government systems stem from a long history of governments which often promote evil and punish good. And unfortunately, that happens. Paul himself knows this. If you look back at what we saw in Romans 8, Look at what he says in this popular passage that I'm sure all of you have heard. Romans 8, verses 38. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, the same type of language he's using in our passage in chapter 13, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Paul is saying there is that there will be times where rulers seek to separate you from God. Rulers infringe upon your ability to worship God. Rulers, like what Paul encountered in Rome, will say, do not evangelize, do not convert, do not gather, do not worship. And Paul knows that this should not be so. And I'm not going to spend hardly any time tonight talking about how we should live when governments are doing evil things. That's something that's uh, a really good topic, and the Bible says much on it. But here we just want to focus on what the text is saying. Governments should protect and even define what is good for the sake of well-being. Secondly, this is the flip side of the coin, government should punish what's wrong. Romans 13, 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Justice should be at the center of good government. To not correct what is wrong is to love poorly. To not punish what is wrong is to govern poorly. And, and we can argue, and there's great Christian liberty in this as to what extent we should pu punish what is wrong. And that's a good ground for further debate. And we should do that. 
And we, but we know that the government should not just seek to protect what is good, but it should punish what is wrong. It should seek to eradicate what is wrong for the sake of preserving what is good. So the government should pr- protect what is good, punish what is wrong. And the last assumption we see here is that government ought to promote what is good. Romans 6, or excuse me, 13, 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. So promoting what is good is different than protecting what is good. Because I can protect what is good while not really doing anything that fosters good. But here Paul is saying is that from the revenue side, when businesses are ta- or governments are taxing you, the money that they're taking in, the authority you're giving them is not just to line their own pockets, but it's, be to, it's to be used in a ministerial role. It's to serve people. It's to promote societies which seek to learn good, do good, and produce good. And when Paul says that they're ministers of God, Paul isn't saying um, that the government is to be the church. Separation of church and state happens here in Romans 13 before it ever happened um, in America. We're not called to live in a theocracy. The Bible isn't our law for all things pertaining to government. And we know that because here Paul's telling us to pay taxes to Caesar, who's persecuting Paul, who's an enemy of the gospel. But Paul is being very clear here that the role of good government is to seek welfare, not personal wealth or prestige. So those are just three brief assumptions. And again, the length of uh, depth, the length and depth of how much the government should promote good is another debate, but it's clear that government should promote good. So those are cut and dry, okay? We all get that. That sounds right. That sounds like a good government, right? Do good, protect good, and punish wrongdoing. But here's where we get a little blurry. Because these principles of government can still be applied in a lot of different ways. It would have been so much easier if Paul said, this is how you should govern. This is the specific setup. Here's what your democratic system looks like. Here's what your government interaction should be. But he doesn't give us that. He gives us the command to obey. And he gives principles for those who are governing. So the question is, is how does this shape your life? Why is this relevant for you? Do you really need to be told you should pay taxes and you should obey government authorities so long as they're not telling you to do things that God has prohibited? And this is why we need to look at the second point tonight. We must not only know the God of the gospel as the root of authority, but we need to know the gospel of God. Because when we understand what God has done in the gospel, we actually begin to understand how we respond to varied systems of government. That means when we know the gospel well, we'll be able to not only be good Christians in a democratic republic, but we'll be able to be good Christians in a socialist environment. We'll be able to be good Christians in a parliament environment because our principles aren't based off of a system of government. Our principles are based off of what Christ has done in the gospel. So in closing, I want to give four implications which are really relevant for us right now during this season on how we interact with governing authorities and how that shapes our view of what's important. So we're looking at the gospel of Jesus, how the gospel of Jesus changes our thoughts. The first thing we need to do is we need to think deeply on the corporate and social nature of the gospel. Okay, let me be clear here. The gospel is first and foremost 
theological. It is the good news that Christ died for your sins. The gospel is the good news, not because it makes us better men, but because it brings us from death to life. Before the gospel ever changes your relationship with another man, it changes your relationship with God himself. That is our chief need. Our chief need isn't world peace. Our chief need is to be friends and brother, or friends and sons and daughters of God. However, when Christ restores us, when Christ forgives our sins, when he takes our punishment, there are plenty of social implications that flow out of it. Namely, and think of what we just saw in the presuppositions, in the gospel, we begin to know what is good. In the gospel, we see a perfect picture of what is just. In the gospel, we see what it means to truly promote what is good. You see, when you begin to think of what is good, is the first thing you think about the gospel. Is the first thing you think about is how is God good to me in Jesus Christ? When you think about what's best to rule man, do you think about man's problem? The gospel defines man's problem. If you have a different view of man's problem than what's the reality, your government will look different. If you just think man left to himself is what's best for all society, you're missing the point. Because what Zootopia is wrong about is it's not that we're good until we're intervened with and then we become bad. It's that we are fallen and we are selfish until the gospel intervenes with us and then we begin to see what is good because we've seen the beauty of Christ's death. In the gospel, we see the true problem of man which shapes our thoughts on how man is governed and we also see the true goodness of Christ's selfless sacrifice, of Jesus' moral teachings, of his call to love one another, to seek the welfare of others over the welfare of yourself, his call to to obey God. And how does that shape our political thoughts and actions in society? You see, we shouldn't make the mistake of equating the gospel to to social action. You can have someone who is the most socially involved the most politically inclined, the most generous person, and they could still not know Jesus. But it's equally as wrong as a Christian to believe the gospel and not have the gospel change our moral actions. The gospel needs to shape how we think about the interaction in society. The gospel needs to challenge how we think about abortion, what we think about taxes, what we think about religious liberty, what we think about marriage, what we think about children, what we think about welfare. The gospel needs to shape that because the gospel has purchased all of us. So when you think about politics, we think about laws, we think about obedience, we think about civil disobedience. Are you thinking in light of the gospel? Because only then do you think how you ought to think. Because the gospel frees us from the power of personal preference of thinking what's best for me. And we can begin for the first time to think about what's best for the glory of God in Jesus Christ and what's best for others. And this is really the first political season where I've been like really involved in it. And I found out as things keep going and he who should not be named keeps climbing up in the polls, um, I get really anxious about things. 
But the beauty of letting the gospel shape your politics is you know that the greatest government's yet to come. That no system of government is entirely perfect. And there's no utopia led by man. And so I have here, I printed out a bunch of these, um, a great resource for you that's really helped me think clearly and biblically about social issues. Um, it's called uh, the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberty Convention, the ERLC for short. Um, it's led by a guy named Russell Moore, and he puts out this weekly email. I have a copy of it here. Um, and what it does is just takes a bunch of social issues in the news and what's being talked about. It helps you think about them biblically. Um, in this one, it talks about religious liberty at the GOP debate. Um, it talks about safe space for heroin users, um, uterus transplants, family issues, cultural issues, international issues. And I really encourage you to do this, especially right now. Because what we need is more people thinking intentionally and biblically about the gospel. So take one of these before you go. Um, they're up here. They're also on Twitter. They have a great, for those people who like to see the interaction, between how should Christians interact with culture? They have a great website called Canon and Culture, um, which you should look at. I saw they posted something about Downton Abbey, so they're way more trendy than me. Um, the second uh, implication is influence where God has given you the means of influence. Be present where God has given you the ability to be present. And here in Romans, Paul's talking about paying taxes and giving honor. And that's true in just about every form of government. In just about every form of government, you have a leader who is due some sort of honor because he's given that position, but also who's due taxes. And here's the thing. When we think about us in America, because that's what we're thinking about right now, we need to realize the positions that God has given us to influence, not because America is the best, but because this is where we are. And we need to realize that we have the ability to influence for a greater good because we've seen the greatest good in the gospel. We have new eyes to see man's need and God's goodness. We know that the ultimate hope for humanity exists in Jesus because we're living proof of it. We have a relationship with the good king and we know that one day utopia will be restored because we'll live in the new heavens and the new earth where God rules over us in perfect peace and he has eradicated sin, protected what is good, and creates a culture where we know only blessings. Which means we should seek to bring those social implications into our societal circles. That means vote. Easiest thing you could do, vote in your primary. If you're here and you're from out of state uh, and you're going to be here for four years, that's a presidential term, you should register to vote in Montana. Vote for the, we have a governor, gubernatorial, because Governor election isn't cool enough. Uh, gubernatorial election uh, coming up. Um, you should vote in that. Research your candidates. Pay attention to their social polity, but also pay attention to their morality. Because morality, the, the idea of what is good, shapes policies for the public good. Okay? If anything happens tonight that's beneficial for how you think about politics, you can't disassociate morality from, from policy. You can't. Building a crosswalk, as uh, inordinate as it might seem, is a reflection of what is good. And if people have a poor ability to see what is good, it's going to shape more than religious liberty or rights to life. Democracy needs morality. If democracy, and so I'm talking again about America here, the assumption is we're in America. If democracy is the voice of the people, and we have a people who don't know what is good, we become our own tyrants. And we become a society with no good law 
because the voice of the people is weak on morality. And you can influence with more than just morality. You can influence with the gospel. Run for local offices. I, I had, uh, we had a guy, well actually Pedro, some of you might know him from church, from Argentina. He's like, if you guys only knew the influence you had in your government, even on, on a local level, it's amazing. You could go into city council meetings and influence things happening in your city. We live in an area of 100,000 and 12 people show up to our city council meetings. There's great influence there. Here at UM, think about joining ASUM. Think about influencing. No, it won't be easy. Know that part of the fall means that we're going to have different views of things, especially people who have a gospel view. Write your senators. Run for local school boards. Be present on city councils. Write your representatives. This is what God has given us in America. And alongside just paying taxes, we have a great way to influence culture and polity as people who truly know what is good because we understand who man is and who God is. Thirdly, implication for us is rest in God's sovereign guidance of history. Because it's true that not all leaders have been good. Right? Don't need a world history class to know that. We know that. But Romans 13.1 is still true. God is Lord over all of them. You say, well, how does a good God let bad rulers exist? And we know that God uses wicked things for good because we've seen the cross of Jesus. The most wicked event in the history of our world is where the only innocent man to have ever existed was murdered at the hands of a bloodthirsty crowd and God purposed it and planned it for his good. God is always doing good even when the momentary evil is in charge. We saw in, uh, in, the, in Exodus what we're going through right now at Sovereign Hope that Pharaoh was a bad dude. Pharaoh was a wicked man. But we saw earlier in Romans 9, Pharaoh, I raised you up for my glory. I raised you up that I might save more people than you have ever persecuted. And we know that there may be times, there may be places in America, abroad, where we live under evil rulers. But in that, God can use that, that corruption to show his glory, to preserve your faith, and to save souls. Lastly, pray continually for your appointed leaders. Look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. For kings who are in high positions, what are we praying for? That's what it says right here. Praying that we as the people may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And then verse 3, which isn't up there, says, This is good, pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior. God is saying, pray that government works well. When government works well, everybody lives in a better world. Pray for your government. Pray for him who should not be named. Pray for your, your worst enemy in a political election. Pray that despite their failings, whether they're saved or unsaved, that they would just be good government officials. That they would lead us to a place where we can, as Christians, flourish and promote the gospel. 
Pray that they may protect what is good, punish what is evil, and promote flourishing. And see, all these things that Paul's talking about in Romans 13 are things you could do right now as college students. You can participate, you can pray, and you can think biblically about all these things. The gospel does shape your politics. Government is relevant to the Christian. My wife's ran into so many weird Christians who don't vote because they're like, God's in charge. You don't understand God. (laughs) You don't understand the ability God has given us to think and reason and influence. So in this season, I'm so glad I'm preaching Romans 13 in an election season. Otherwise, it'd be really hard for us (laughs) because we really don't do much with government. But think biblically on these things and praise God that despite what government we may inherit in America or government that exists globally, Jesus has restored utopia in the cross. Jesus has solved our greatest need and he will one day establish for those who believe in him the best government, a present government before God and among men. To understand government and our responsibility, we must know the God of the gospel and the gospel of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, it's kind of weird to just have Paul in the middle of this uh, book on the gospel start talking about how we are to live under authority. But God, how we live under authority is an innate reflection of who you are. To obey authority is to train ourselves to obey you. And Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment to obey authority where we are called to obey it. I pray you give us wisdom and discernment to disobey authority when authority is going against what you've called us to do, even as Paul himself did when he was told not to preach, but he continued to preach. But God, I pray more importantly, and and in the immediate future of these individuals here, that we may think with greater clarity on how the gospel changes our interaction with each other and with government. That we may trust God's goodness in the appointing of our leaders and seek to live and influence as fully Christian under them. I pray just on a practical level, Lord, that we who live in a world where there's, or in a country where there's great religious liberty, that we take great advantage of it and we proclaim the gospel in whatever situation we can because in your providence and in your goodness, you've afforded us that ability. God, I pray we don't squander the government system that you've given us here. And we we want to know that you haven't given America the best government system because you live in heaven with an American flag flowing in the background and bald eagles flying overhead. But you've given us this system because you are good and kind. And for that, we're grateful and we want to labor well. We pray this in your name. Amen.